What a great job. Thank you, kids. That was amazing. That song was written uh, by a teenager named Sky Peterson. Make sure this is plugged in. You know what? This isn't plugged in on this side, man. Give me just a second. Hang on. I have a PowerPoint. I'm going to disappear for a second. That um, song was written by a teenager named Sky Peterson, who was a little bit overwhelmed with all the pressures that she felt in the culture around her to define herself by what the culture was saying versus what Scripture says. And um, what an incredible benefit it would be to our church and the next generation if every one of those kids embodied that song, recognizing that were bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. And so, so thankful for not only the kids ministering that, but also for all the work that went into that to teach uh, our kids the words of that song and pray they'll embody it. First Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. First Timothy chapter 3, as we continue uh, our series on the office of the pastor, the offices of the church, specifically the office of pastor, what it is, what its purpose is, and leading us in a greater biblical understanding of what God reveals to us on this topic. This is the fourth message on a Sunday morning on this concept. Three weeks ago we examined the whole concept of what Scripture teaches about the office of pastor and how God's plan and God's new, and the New Testament, God clearly reveals that the pattern of the New Testament church was for a group of pastors to lead the church and for a group of deacons to serve the church. Some call them pastors and elders, some call them elders, some call them pastors, whatever it would be. And, uh, and so we saw biblical proof and evidence of this three weeks ago. We also saw historical evidence of how this has been um, kind of implemented throughout church history. Two weeks ago, I led us through Ephesians chapter 4 to see that the New Testament reveals that God has gifted his church with this office. In other words, pastors are not something that we need to be looking outside of our church for, but in Ephesians chapter 4, God clearly reveals that God gifts his church with these offices. And then last week we looked at Matthew 16 and verse 18 to see that Christ owns the church and therefore has the authority to not only tell us how the church is structured, but also how the church should operate. I will build my church, is what Jesus says. And so therefore we came to the conclusion that even though we have pastors and deacons and members in our church, The church is owned by Christ, and so all of us must align under the authority of Jesus Christ. And so the purpose of this series has been to present to the congregation that the Bible teaches that each individual church should be led by a group of pastors and served by a group of deacons. We saw that evidenced, we see it evidenced all through the book of Acts, specifically in Acts chapter 20, as Paul goes to the singular church at Ephesus and addresses the elders, the pastors that are there. Three titles used for this office of pastor, as we've seen in the New Testament, elders, overseers, and pastors, all talking about the same office. We refer to them as pastors here at Community, and that is, um, that, that's how we've referred to this office in the past, and, uh, and how we'll refer to it in the future. All three of those, nothing wrong with each one of those, you can, you know, you can make your choice, um, but, uh, but we just, in, in, for sake of unity, we just refer to them as pastors, so everybody knows what we're talking about. 
This morning, we're going to look at the qualifications of pastors, and we're going to ask this question, what should I look for in pastors and deacons? As we continue to build the case that God is calling out from his congregation the offices of pastors and deacons, the question you should be asking is, what should we be looking for for people to hold these two biblical offices? We need to start with a review of exactly what these offices are. The pastors, are uh, the role is to submit to Christ and his word and lead the congregation through teaching, administration, and example, both paid and unpaid. And then the deacons could be both paid and unpaid as well, is the role of the deacons is to submit to Christ and his word by serving the physical needs of the congregation, thus providing care and unity to the church and freedom for the pastors to lead. One is not better than the other, one is not more important than the other. You have to have both in order to have a healthy congregation being served and led according to scripture. What we're going to talk about this morning, in its sense, is actually a defense of what we would call biblical congregationalism, meaning that the congregation serves as the final authority in the church. We looked at the church structure of the church as Christ as our head. All of us are called to submit to Christ, and so we sing this morning, speak, Lord, that we can hear your word and thus align our heart with your word. Underneath the church, the entire congregation is called to submit to the word of God, led by the person of Christ. This congregation is led by a group of pastors, and it's served by a group of deacons. But the emphasis that we want to make this morning is that it is the responsibility of the congregation to select its members, its pastors, and its deacons. Pastors don't appoint other pastors to serve in that role. They can definitely recommend and examine, but it is up to the congregation to select its pastors. Therefore, when a pastor exerts, or we could say, so that when a pastor exerts spiritual authority over the congregant, the member, the member understands that they've asked him to do that. And when a deacon serves the congregation, the members understand that the deacons have asked the the, the congregation has asked the deacons to serve in that way. And so the congregation is responsible for selecting its members, pastors, and deacons. We see this reflect in two main areas. The pattern is given for us in Acts chapter 6, but not only that, these letters were written to the church as a whole to be read in the church. All of the epistles were written, some of them written to specific people, but with the understanding that they would be read to the church as a whole to shepherd the church. It's just two brief ways, and we can go into more, but that's two brief ways that we see this happening that way. And so with that in mind, we're going to ask this question, what should I look for in pastors and deacons? We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 down through verse 13, and then we'll look at this passage to answer these questions for us. Let's look to the scriptures, and then we'll ask God's blessing on the sermon. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, that's our pastor, pastor, overseer, elder, all the same 
office there. The office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives or the women as well, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. We see these qualifications given to us in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. Let's ask for God's blessing. Heavenly Father, as we look into this passage, may we be granted wisdom and understanding as we seek to align our hearts, our lives, and everything we do, as well as our corporate body here at Community, under the teaching of the Word. In your name we pray. Amen. As we jump right in the middle of 1 Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy, we always run the risk of pulling these, uh, these concepts out of context and just jumping right in and forgetting why, Tim- why Paul is even telling Timothy these things. As we jump into chapter 3, we have to realize that Paul is writing to this young pastor of the church at Ephesus to mentor him through a long distance and how the church should operate and what his responsibility is as a pastor. In chapter 1, he references false teachers and he says, here are all the things that are true of false teachers. And now in chapter 3, he says, listen, this is what the leaders of the world look like in chapter 1. We're contrasting that with the leaders of the church. And so what we see is that the overarching picture of what Paul is giving Timothy in in chapter 3 is that people in the church and the leaders of the church should have a distinct otherness. There should be a difference between how the church as God's body, God's living organism, God's body is led, and how the world leads. Now there will be some overlap because people are made in the image of God, God's truth stands, truth works, and so you will see biblical principles worked out among those who are not saved, but in general, The character of those who lead in the world and the character of those who lead in the church should be distinct. There should be an otherness, a distinction, a godliness about those who lead the church. And Paul gets very specific as to what this looks like. You can actually go through the list that Paul gives and come up with the opposite of what it looks like with those 
who lead in the world. We don't really have, a, have time to do that, but if you'd like an interesting maybe study for one morning, go through these characteristics and say, okay, what's the contrast that he's making with people that we'd see in the world? I'll just give you one. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Not a lover of money. And yet those who would lead in the world, many times their sole pursuit is to gain more money. And so that's just one illustration of the differences there. Before we look into these qualifications, I'd like to ask a couple of key questions that are going to set the stage for us. The first question is one that you may have never thought of before, and it's this. Who is responsible for making sure that the pastors and the deacons are qualified in this way? In order to serve in our, in our children's ministry, you have to have a background check done. That protects you, it protects our ministry, it, uh, it makes sure that we're offering a safe environment. And the responsibility of that background check is to make sure that you are qualified to work with children. We don't do the same thing with pastors and deacons. We don't have some sort of biblical qualifications test on the internet that some outside source steps in and examines the lives of the people at community and says, you're qualified for this and you're qualified for this. Who is responsible for qualifying pastors and deacons? And the answer is that local congregation. It is your responsibility as a member to make sure that those who lead and those who serve fall under this qualification. This is the working out of true congregationalism. As we look at these qualifications, I'd like to offer a couple brief introductory notes. So, it is the the membership's responsibility, the congregation's responsibility to qualify their own pastors and deacons, meaning that you put your stamp for approval on one person to serve in this way. But in order to understand how these even operate, let's look at a couple notes, okay? Number one, these qualities are not negotiable. It's like, hey, we see a list of 15. This guy hits 10 out of 15. That's a passing grade. Let's let him serve in this way, okay? These are all non-negotiable. They're either all present or they're not. But even though they're all non-negotiable, they're not absolute. What do we mean by that? It means that a person who serves the pastor, as we'll see in a minute, should not be quarrelsome. But that doesn't mean he's never gotten in an argument. Okay, They're not absolute. It's not saying if you have ever done one of these things in your entire life, it disqualifies you. These are character, consistent character traits of saying, when I see that phrase and apply it to that person's life, I say, yes, that person exemplifies this. I may have gotten in an argument with him a couple years ago on the softball field, or we may have had an argument over which restaurant was best, and it got pretty heated because we care about it, but... It's not characteristic of that person's life. He's not a quarrelsome person. And so those, things, those first two notes are very important for us to understand. They are non-negotiable, but they're not, necess- they're not necessarily absolute. Number three, these also aren't superhuman qualities. D.A. Carson said this, which I think is, is very memorable. He says, each of these qualifications are remarkable for being totally unremarkable. In other words, this isn't like you need some sort of outside influence to zap you in order to create a different nature within you, okay? 
And number four, these qualities serve as a pattern for normal, consistent Christian living. In other words, if you are consistently living the Christian life, these will be true about you. They're a pattern of consistent Christian living. So let's go into these in detail. We'll look at pastoral qualifications and deacon qualifications. There are 15 given. We're going to go fast. If you have questions, write them down. Bring them at 5 o'clock this evening, and we can, we can address them uh, more specifically. Okay? The first quality that's given for pastors is that they're above reproach. This means that the pastor must be morally clear, above criticism. If an accusation's brought, you would be hesitant or it would be hard to believe about this person because you know their character and you say, nah, you, may be, you must be talking about someone else because I know the character of this person. doesn't mean perfect. It just means above reproach, above criticism. The husband of one wife. Literally, the phrase here is a one-woman man. A man who has kept himself for one person. This is a character qualification that would communicate that this person, this man, is an example of what it looks like to be totally devoted and dedicated to one woman. This could be their current spouse, current fiance, or an unknown woman that would one day be their current spouse, that would one day be their spouse. And there are two traps that people fall into with the translation of this phrase that we need to be careful to avoid. One, that the pastor must be married. It says a husband of one wife. Well, you're not a husband. You're not qualified. Well, that's not what this phrase says. It says a one woman man is literally how the Greek is laid out here. There are a lot of benefits, obviously, to a pastor being married. In fact, there would be some dangers that would be present if a pastor is not married. However, I've known a couple single men to effectively pastor and shepherd congregations. Certainly, a godly wife is a huge asset in ministry and a ministry expander. But this verse is not saying that a person has to be married in order to serve as a pastor. The phrase is one woman man. The second trap that people fall into with this is to say, well, this means that a pastor could have never, ever in their history been divorced. Now, we need to remember, first of all, that every single man serving in a church needs to be qualified according to biblical principles and needs to be devoted to his wife. No question. However, we have to remember who Paul was speaking to in the context in which they were ministering. So before we fast forward this in a 21st century culture, we need to say, okay, who was Paul writing to? Why was he writing? Paul was writing to Timothy, who was shepherding a generation of all first-generation Christians. You have to realize that. All first-generation Christians. Secondly, divorce was so rampant in the first century that the vast majority, if not all men, the vast majority of them, have been divorced. We can see this when Jesus teaches on divorce in Matthew chapter 19. I want to read you... What the question is, Jesus' answer, and how his disciples respond, which is really interesting. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3, the Pharisees came to him and tested him, saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
which was very common. In fact, if you read uh, first century historical accounts, and, and we, won't, we don't have time to go into this deeply, but there were um, basically accounts of people divorcing their wives because they burnt the dinner, you know, or something. Something wasn't on time. They're looking for a reason. They found a reason. They let their wife, they let the woman go, and it, it was just a terrible situation. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, therefore, a man leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. God's desire and goal is one man, one woman, one life. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and then send her away? And Jesus said to them, Matthew 19, because the hardness of your heart, you were taking advantage and abusing this. And because the hardness of your heart, Moses made it as difficult as possible for this to happen. I say to you, from the beginning it was not so. Verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples, those who are following Christ, say the following. If this is the case of a man with his wife, it's better never to get married. In other words, who in the world would get married if I can't just divorce her at my, early, at my earliest whim, right? If I'm actually locked in for life, if God, Jesus, if it's that serious, that except for sexual immorality, and later we see Paul expounding on that, of saying abuse, neglect in 1 Corinthians 7, then it's better not to get married. Marriage is serious. And to say the husband of one wife actually makes this qualification far more serious than just not divorced. For there are some men who've never been divorced who are not one woman men. And there are men who maybe early in their life, maybe before they were saved or very early on, made a mistake were divorced, were convicted and, 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 and sought to get right with God through that, were forgiven, maybe remarried, maybe not, but for the last 10, 15, 20 years have a pattern of living for God and can be considered by the church, if you were to say, is that person a one-woman man? The answer would be Yes. And so it goes far deeper than just the shallow reading that some people would have to slip into this misreading of Scripture. For there are some people, once again, who've never been divorced and say, oh, you've never been divorced, you're a candidate. Whoa, 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 hang on a second. No, it's far more serious than that. As we examine, is this person dedicated to one woman? The implications of this in regards to um, a person who is flirtatious, a person who has emotional attachments with other women, fidelity to a spouse, freedom from pornography, and we could go on and on and on. All of those implications are drawn from this one phrase that the candidate must be a one-woman man. Thirdly, sober-minded. This means temperate. Not given to extremes, restrained, able to abstain if needed. Often this is used in the context of alcohol, but it's not only used in this context. 
that in your general lifestyle, you know, you're not given to these massive pendulum swings and extremes, but that you are temperate, sober-minded, focused, self-controlled, not controlled by outside forces on your life, not letting the flesh control you, but this person should have mastery over their body and mastery over their habits. Each one of these are character qualities. Respectable. Interestingly enough, Paul says that a pastor should be respectable, meaning that people should be able to look on those who serve as pastors and they would say, I respect that person's choices. I respect their lifestyle. Their life is worthy of respect. There should not be activities, actions, attitudes, or habits that would earn that person disrespect inside the church or outside the church. Hospitable. And this is an interesting one. A character quality that literally means the love of strangers. Which means pastors should not be given to cliques. There should not be, you know, a a person who's leading the church who chooses to surround himself with one or two people and everyone else is outside the circle. These people are inside the circle. It also has inferences towards judgmentalism. But more than that, it carries the idea that the one who would serve as a pastor would give themselves to an openness of lifestyle. In other words, the life is open to the sheep that he's ministering to. There is a difference between privacy and secrecy. Those are two different things. Those are two different terms here. And the pastor's life in being hospitable, meaning that his life is open and welcoming, would also be open and welcoming to those who would examine the life of the pastor. It's also said true of deacons, as we'll see in a minute, in order to examine these qualities. How would I know if that person's a lover of money? How would I know if that person's self-controlled? How would I know if that person's sober-minded? Well, their life doesn't mean they don't have privacy in their life, all right? It means that their life is open and hospitable, welcoming of others. This is why often you will hear things like pastors live in a glass house. Because in order for the congregation to qualify a family and qualify a pastor as such, there has to be a hospitable and open sense. Able to teach is our next one. Able to teach. Now let's remember that these are character qualities. Character qualities. This carries with it a sense of competence. Now before we talk about what this is, let's talk about what it's not. This able, or if you have the King James, apt to teach, is not a sense to where this, the, the person who's going to serve as a pastor has to be the most dynamic, the, the most dynamic uh, public speaker, right? This is someone who I could listen to for hours. They can command an audience of a thousand and hold them. They can, when they speak, you either hear thunderous applause or you can barely hear a pin drop. And he can actually control that at a moment's notice. That's not what this is saying. The goal in finding pastors for our church would not be to find the most entertaining and wowing speakers. This qualification has to do with 
the teaching of Scripture. And we actually see this expounded further in the book of Titus. Listen to Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. The same qualification given to Titus as he's pastoring his churches. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must be apt to teach, able to teach, so that, Titus 1.9, he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. How do you know if someone, according to this verse, is able to teach? That when they explain the Bible, they can accurately explain the Bible, and they can do that to the point of teaching you what the Bible teaches and recognizing what the Bible doesn't teach. They can teach sound doctrine and rebuke false teachers and refute false teaching. This can be done in private, one-on-one settings. Some people are much better in small group or in one-on-one settings than they are in public speaking. Public speaking is the number one fear of most people. A pastor doesn't have to thrive on public speaking or enjoy public speaking in order to be qualified to be a pastor. This phrase has to deal with how they interact with Scripture. It is the key to leadership in the church. If we are desiring a word-centered church, we must be led by those who can understand the word and communicate it effectively. Even if you say, I have that ability, but my, my gifting would be more in a counseling scenario or a discipling scenario one-on-one. But for me to get up in front of the entire group and to do that on a regular basis, man, that's just not how I'm gifted. Although I do understand the Bible, I understand what it teaches, and I can communicate that to others. Too many pulpit committees get enamored with personality. There are, there are men who, who I know right now who are either transitioning to another ministry or perhaps have served as an associate and are looking to step into a lead pastor position, whatever that would be. I'm actually communicating with one right now who's looking at different ministries and, and, um, and he's asked for a reference for a, a pastor that he's looking for. Most Pulpit committees and pastor, pastoral search committees will say, send us a sermon that we can listen to. And what does every pastor do, right? We have, there's something in pastoral ministry called sugar stick sermons. Sugar stick sermons are one that I, we've been practiced over and over and over and over again, right? We got our timing just down right. It's got perfect illustrations. It's got a great introduction, a great conclusion. And if you get a chance to preach just one time somewhere, you're going to pull out one one of those sugar stick sermons because it's so practiced up. And people go, wow! And you say, yeah, but if you expect that every week, you're really going to be let down, right? Because it's not the way this works. And so a lot of pastoral search committees, having never been pastors, not understanding the rigors of pastoral ministry, We'll we'll listen to a sugar stick sermon and go, that's the kind of guy we want. He's got charisma. He can handle a crowd. Man, can he preach. And if not careful, we care more about charisma than we do about character and content. And this app to teach has nothing to do with charisma. It has everything to do with character and content. We find ourselves looking for pastors. It would be a good practice for us to choose a passage of Scripture and to give that passage of Scripture to a pastor and have a week to prepare it just like he normally would and to say, bring this passage of Scripture to bear. 
And so we can have a better understanding of whether or not you can understand the scripture and communicate it effectively, apt to teach. Not a drunkard. This refers to being free from the influences of addictions. Today we could add to this gambling, alcoholism, legal and illegal drugs as our culture continues to shift addictions to painkillers and on and on and on. This, this character quality would reference a life that is free from addictions. There should not be a governing addictive influence on the life of the pastor. Any sort of influence like this would drive him to sin and draw his heart away from the ministry of the world, the, the word. And would also have a strong temptation to skew the way that he would operate with other people. If you've ever worked with an addict, you know what I'm referring to there. Not violent, not a bully, or prone to violence. This would include all situations, both spiritual and non-spiritual. This would include someone who's physically or emotionally abusive. Because it would be easy to use the scripture as a club than to transition into spiritual abuse. This does not mean that the pastor is not willing to fight false doctrine. There may be times when the shepherd needs to defend the sheep from lions, wolves, and bears. But these situations should be unique and should be entered into carefully and should always be motivated by a love for God and his sheep. The pastor should not be a bully. The pastor should be gentle. This qualification is a general idea of kindness, being courteous, strength under control. Not weak, strong, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, quarrelsome. You ever met someone who's just looking for an argument? My mom used to tell us as boys, you could argue with a brick wall. Say, no, I can't. Exactly. Not quarrelsome. Some people exist to argue, just to prove they're right. You don't want leaders in your church like that. There's a difference between a discussion and an argument. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Pastors should not be a person who's driven by a love for money or driven by a love for possessions. A pastor should not be using the ministry of the gospel as a way to fleece the congregation, as a way to fill their own pockets. Now, this is not a statement about wealth. Wealth in general is not evil. There are some pastors who by nature of their family background or by nature of prudent business practices may find themselves in a situation where the pastor is wealthy. Money is not wrong. Wealth needs to be leveraged. I'd rather have somebody who's godly with wealth than somebody who's ungodly with wealth, right? And so we leverage wealth for the, for the gospel's sake. Money is is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. 
You can be a person who doesn't have much money and is consumed by the love and pursuit of money. In fact, most people who are consumed by the love of money don't have it. They think it's the solution to all their problems, and it's not. And on the other hand, you can have a very wealthy person who holds on to that wealth with an open hand, using it for gospel endeavors, using it for biblical purposes, and not be a lover of money. Not a lover of money refers to the driving motivation of a pastor's life cannot be the love of money. He must manage his household well, verses 4 and 5. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This can be a very touchy subject. Let me encourage you to think about it this way. When it comes to managing his household well, and we look at pastors at community, you need to be asking the question, if this pastor shepherds our congregation the same way he shepherds his, his house, how would I think about that? Is, does, does this shepherd take care of his home? Is he financially stable? Does he let sin go unchecked? Is his house out of control or is it managed well? But I would encourage you also not to take this too far and say that we have to qualify all of the members in his home. You are not qualifying the pastor's children. Is it possible for a pastor's child to disqualify a pastor from ministry? The answer is yes, but only if the pastor is responding to it wrongly. All of you in this room who have kids know you can't control your kids. Before I had kids, man, I was a perfect parent. Walking through mire, judging all the screaming kids. I wasn't judging the kids, I was judging the parents. Why can't that parent get their kid to just be quiet? I'll never let my kids do that. You ever said that? Now, I don't pity the kids, I pity the parents. Think, man, that poor parent. Life is hard, right? You can control external. You can't change the heart. As when we examine pastors for community, the question should be, is he managing his home well? When sin is present, is it being dealt with? If he manages his home, the church like he manages his home, Will the church be effectively run? Some have even said to say that if the pastor's kids don't turn out to be Christians, he shouldn't be a pastor. Friend, that is, that is adding so much pressure to the pastor and his family in an unbiblical way. I'm a, I'm a human being. Our, our pastors are humans just like you are. We're all beggars seeking bread at the same place. And, and we pray for the salvation of our children. We pray that our children will follow God and will choose rightly. But the stamp of qualification should not be on their actions because they're children just like any of the other children. But should be on our response and our managing of those actions. Does that make sense? 
you have questions about that, I'd love to maybe speak more on that. Let me also say that there is no pressure for pastor's kids at community. That's not on every other child as well. And there should never be phrases said to any of the pastor's children, oh, you're the pastor's kid, you act that way. That should never be an attitude. I never had that growing up, praise the Lord. My parents did not act that way. My dad was a pastor, but I never felt any extra pressure. And for the families that we have, and as God adds pastors to our church, those families should not feel any pressure other than to be faithful Christians. Not a recent convert, verse 6. This also gives a reasoning there. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. This carries with it the idea that each person being examined for the office of pastor needs to have his character and his competence tested over a long period of time before, before given the office. You don't want to get yourself in a situation where you go, okay, we put somebody in leadership before we knew what he was really like, and now we have to deal with it. Now we have to unqualify him. Why does it mean not a recent convert where there's no set time given by Paul? It's up to the congregation. But the key is that that person is tested well. This is why training for a non-paid pastor would be between 12 and 18 months from the beginning of the announcement that this person is looking at pursuing pastoral ministry here at community in a non-paid position to the recommendation for ordination would take a minimum of 12 to 18 months. This is not something that happens fast. So that this can be entered into carefully. The the principle here is character examination. Not a recent convert. And we'll see this reflected in deacons as well. Well thought of by outsiders. This is one that people often get, often leave off. What would your boss say if he knew that you desired to be a pastor at community? Would he be shocked? Let's change that around. What would your employees think? If you pastored the church like you lead them, what would they think? If your work got a call from the current pastoral staff and said, hey, we're looking at at, at Jimmy Bob. I don't think we have a Jimmy Bob here in the church, so we'll just kind of leave that out front. We're looking at Jimmy Bob to to come on on a pastoral position here at our church, and we've gotten to the part in his examination examination where we're reaching out to to get some recommendations. Can you please give me the name of two of his employees and two of his superiors so we can see whether or not he's well thought of by outsiders? And your employees go, man, I bet he'd make a great pastor because he he leads in a way that he's such a servant. Or this person is faithful at work. If they're anything like they are at work, they'll be a blessing to your church. Like, does that make you excited or does that scare you to death? That's what this means. Is that when someone else hears that you're a pastor at this church, that they're not shocked. Like, what? Well thought of by outsiders. I'm going to add one more that's not in 1 Timothy chapter 3, so it's not on your outline, but it's actually back in chapter 2. And it's that a pastor must be male. He must be a man. Look at chapter 2 in your Bible. Begin reading verse 12. 
This is given in the context of local church leadership and local church ministry. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet in regards to teaching and in regards to authority. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. They continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Now, I want everybody to listen carefully because I don't want you to misquote me out of context, okay? Listen carefully. Everybody tuned in? Everybody awake? Okay, because if you're like in that zone of almost asleep, you may mishear me, all right? The Bible never says a lady can't be a pastor, The Bible says that in a local church context, a woman should not exercise spiritual authority nor publicly teach a man in the local church. Since, because that is the role of pastor, that's what a pastor does, a woman cannot hold the office of a pastor. Not because the Bible has a verse that says a a woman can't be a pastor, but but scripture outlines this is how the, this is, these are the functional roles within the church. Is this popular today? No, but it's biblical scripture. And so we need to ask some questions and we need to choose that if that's what scripture is teaching, that we be committed to it. Paul clearly says this is how it should be in the local church. And so we need to ask a very important question. Is his reasoning cultural and thus can change with culture or is his reasoning superseding culture and you can look down and get ahead of me if you want look down at at chapter two i'm going to give you an illustration i planned on going in depth at this but I, i i'm just i'm just sensing that we need to we need to lean into this just a little bit When we look into a command that Paul gives the Corinthian church about women's head coverings, in that passage, I believe, I believe it's clear in that passage that that is a cultural command of submission. And what that means is that in order for a lady to be operating in a way in which their relationship with God is clear, they need to be clearly and culturally aligning under their husband. And so if you go to Eastern cultures, it means head coverings. In our Western culture, that would mean two specific things. Number one, it would mean a wedding ring and the lady taking on the last name of her husband. If, if, if a lady wants to get married to a man and she says, no, I don't want anybody to know I'm married to him by wearing a wedding ring. <laughs> and there is no way I'm taking on his last name. I don't want to have anything to do with him. I just want the tax benefits right? Or I have no plan of aligning under his leadership. Then that would be a a lady who's operating outside of biblical parameters. And the way that we show that in our culture is by adopting the last name of the man and by wearing a wedding ring. The way it's adopted in an Eastern culture is with a head covering. So we have to ask the question, in this command... Is it given because of cultural reasons or is it given, is a reason given that supersedes all cultures? That's the question we have to ask. Okay? Let's look down in chapter 2 and let's answer that question. What are the reasons that Paul gives? He gives two reasons. 4, verse 13, Adam was created first. 
We call this created order. Why should why is it necessary in a biblical church for men to lead in a pastoral setting of exercising spiritual authority and publicly teaching the word because Adam was created first. I'm looking forward to knowing more about what all that means in heaven, but Paul gives a reason. It's not cultural. It's not bound by time. It's created order. Secondly, verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. It's the order of the fall. Now listen carefully. This has nothing to do with one gender being more gullible than another gender. This has nothing to do with women being more ungodly than men and being more susceptible to sin. I've heard that as heresy. That is not true, okay? This is saying that for these two reasons, the order of creation and the order of the fall, God has designed the church to operate in this way. It is a statement of function, not of value. I know a lot of ladies who could do a far better job of pastors than some guys, okay? This is not a statement of value. This is a statement of function. And the question is, will we be obedient to this? I'm going to lean this one step further, okay? When a church decides to ordain women pastors... They are not making a practical divergence from Scripture. They are making a theological divergence from Scripture in this way. They are choosing to interpret Scripture differently than what it plainly says. When a a church denomination or a local church chooses to look at this passage and say, I know that's what it says, but I don't want it to be that way. Surely he didn't mean this. It can't mean this. I'm not going to take it at face value and believe what it says. So therefore, we're going to, we're going to you know, go off what Scripture says in order, in order to appease the culture, in order to appease a person, in order to be more open. They make a, a, a hermeneutical change here. That means how they interpret Scripture. They, they choose not to take Scripture for what it clearly says. They are on the beginning of a path to doctrinal apostasy. And so you will see that church eventually end up going against other commands of Scripture. Why? Because there are other commands of Scripture that I wouldn't want to be that way. I mean, look at Romans 1. It talks about, you know, the homosexual lifestyle and the LGBTQ agenda. And if you start explaining away this passage, where do you stop? And so, friends, we have an interpretational choice in Scripture, and that is to let the Scripture speak and to align our hearts and our lives with the truth of Scripture, even if it stands against our culture. And so, if you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are attending churches who have women pastors, I want you to just watch and, to, and to, to watch them slip into doctrinal apostasy because as problems come up and they're faced with issues that the text clearly deals with, they will begin to explain away Scripture and embrace the culture rather than embracing Scripture and standing against the culture. And so when we look at this, we have to realize that Scripture clearly says that the office of pastor should be held by men. That is not a statement of value. 
nor is it a statement of spiritual importance. It is a statement of function. Does that make sense? And if you have more questions about that, we've got an open question and answer at 5 o'clock. I'd love to, love to walk you through more. Um, the deacons are a lot the same. There's much, much overlap here. And so, um, so we'll go through these really quickly. Dignified, respectable, same. Not double-tongued, meaning that they speak the truth. Not addicted to much wine, going back to not a drunkard, dealing with addictions as well. Not greedy for dishonest gain, not a lover of money. You see these parallels, see these character parallels? Holding, uh, holding to the faith with a clear conscience. Tested, there it is again, not a recent convert. Husband of one wife, once again a one-woman man. Managing his household, well, it's all the same. Deacons and pastors and their character qualifications are the same because they're just consistent Christians. They're people who have a testimony of, living the, of consistently living the Christian life. Like, if you were to take your 10-year-old and you were to say, do you know what a godly person looks like? Look at that person. That's what this is talking about. Not perfect, but a pattern of consistent Christian living. And then it talks about deacons' wife's qualifications here. Dignified, not a slanderer, sober-minded, and faithful in all of these things. Gossip and slander destroys churches. And faithful in these qualifications. I want, I want to bring out, I know we're running out of time, just a couple notes here which I think are interesting. Paul um, explains more on these than others, which I think is an interesting note here. That we look at this and say, Managing household well, being tested and well thought of by outsiders, Paul goes out of his way to say, these, you need to know what these mean. And more than likely, at the church at Ephesus, there were men who needed to focus specifically on those areas. I'd also like to point out for you the difference between pastors and deacons. In their character, they are all the same. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, the character qualities of pastors and deacons are the exact same. But there is one competence difference. Those who serve the church need to be obedient to the word. And those who lead the church need to know how to teach the word. You say, why is that important? Well, it's, a, it's, it's, it's very important because what happens when you have a group of leaders who don't understand the scripture and know how to communicate it to others? Or who don't know how to spot false teaching? Extremely important. The commendation here, we'll go through this briefly. The desire for the office is a beautiful and well-respected task in verse 1. And then in verse 13, all those who serve well gain an official opportunity to serve, an encouraging opportunity, and then they strengthen their faith. Observations. All but one of these qualifications are character-based. That would be the competence, being able to teach. Both offices stress the examination of the home and life of the candidate and the tested character over a long period of time. The qualification difference between pastors and deacons is that pastors must be able to teach the word. That means understand the Bible accurately, communicate it in truth to teach sound doctrine, and refute false teaching. Whereas if you are here and you do not have that ability, and you are a faithful Christian, you can be a servant of the church but friends, we would not want you leading the church because you may inadvertently lead the church into error. Number four, these qualifications every Christian should aspire to. Let's look at some conclusions. We'll be done. The church must take congregationalism seriously in order for this process to work, defective, work effectively. 
There are some who would think that congregationalism is all about fighting it at members' meetings, right? Or making sure that that poor treasurer who missed 10 cents on his yearly, you know, review knows about it. Or so help me, if you touch the decorations in this church without this committee, you know, (laughs) we'll spray paint the walls or whatever, you know. That congregationalism, no, congregationalism is about protecting the doctrine of the church by caring enough to examine those who will be your leaders and be your servants. Like leaning into this responsibility. Because you are responsible. You are responsible for this qualification. By requiring pastors to be able to teach pastoral leadership in the church protects the church from deliberate or inadvertent unbiblical direction. When your leadership knows the Bible well and is committed to the Bible, to be able to communicate it effectively and refute false doctrine, you are in a safe place. And therefore, pastoral leadership leads the church with that in mind. Because the office of pastor by... Because the office of pastor by nature of the office includes the exercise of spiritual authority and the public teaching of men in the gathered setting, the office of pastor must be reserved for qualified willing men. Those are the conclusions that we come to. The serious conclusions of recognizing that men living their Christian life faithfully should be recognized to lead and serve the church. Those who are apt to teach, to lead and serve as pastors. Those who do not have the ability to teach, maybe they've never been taught. Maybe they just don't have that ability or that desire. Those would serve as deacons. And as we commit to God and operating and organizing the church in his prescribed way, I believe we'll find blessing and find unity around the truth. Once again, we're going to have a question and answer time, an open question and answer time at 5 o'clock and then more of a public question-answer preaching time. We'll all deal with even some more questions at 6 o'clock tonight. Look forward to gathering around uh, the Word in a, in a way again like that and, uh, and praying God's blessing whenever His truth is present. So let's pray to the Lord in that way. Lord, would you give us grace to live in accordance with your Word, that we would understand the truth that we would commit to live by the truth. And would you raise up men in our church to lead, who would lead in this way, in accordance with the truths of Scripture. Thank you for the men that you have given to us, and I pray that we would raise up generations even to come that would lead in this way. We also thank you for those who have been given to service faithful, qualified, willing men. Thank you for those that are serving our congregation both in member care and also in administrative tasks in this way. May you raise up leadership from within our church that will be honoring and glorifying to you. Friends, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you do me a favor this morning and would you take this moment of response and reflection to pray that God would raise up men in our church who are qualified in their character and willing to serve in this way that our church may receive the blessing and find unity through their leadership and service. Would you spend a few moments in prayer?
Father, thank you for your word that guides us. May you bless and find unity in this congregation. Thank you so much for placing us in an area that needs the gospel. And I pray that we would take the message of the gospel to the South Bend and the Michigan area, everywhere that you've placed us. We pray in the name of Jesus.